This is the multi-voice text-to-speech podfic reading of Quintuple Meter by Crethes, composed by Burning Aurora. Chapter 1. Agitado It's just an audition. He's done loads of them, more than he can count, and has had his fair share of failures and, well, certainly more than his fair share of successes, if the bitter bastards in queue behind him are any indication. There's a target on his back, an invisible bullseye painted across his jacket. He is the one to beat. He's confident, as evidenced by his lax interpretation of the dress code. While the other applicants are dressed in their best suits and boring, muted dresses, serious stands in thick black jeans, a black button-up, and his black leather jacket. If they really want him, they'll take him like this. This job isn't just lucrative. A whole 35,000 pounds for a half-year's work. It's exciting, which is far more than he can say for the normal gigs he books. He's been given the opportunity to work with other top-class musicians and to breathe life into classic artworks as they travel around the continent. Sirius isn't sure where the foundation, as they're calling themselves, got the funds to swing such a massive undertaking, but he's never been one to look a gift horse in the mouth. His audition goes flawlessly, 40 minutes of showing off his life's dedication, turning stale keys into warm, room-shaking dramatics. The proctors thank him, smile, and shut off the recording. Sirius shakes their hands and leaves, high on life, a job well done, and his inevitable success. The months wait to hear back from the foundation dampens Sirius's spirits significantly, and the stress of not knowing nearly drives him back to smoking. His tetchiness even makes his patient, tolerant, indulgent best mate James beg him to please, please pick up a new hobby, because pacing their flat and jumping every time his phone rings is apparently nerve-wracking and startling Lily, who's been spending an awful lot of time at their flat for not paying any rent. Deep breaths, Sirius. Sirius doesn't really mind Lily being around all the time, though, not as much as he used to, anyway. He used to be terribly jealous. His brother by choice's new girlfriend, sorry soulmate, was the only thing he could talk about, and boy, could he talk. Hours spent prattling on about the exact shade of her hair when the sun hit it versus just daylight light bulbs, how soft it was, how nice it smelled. All that hasn't died down in the slightest, but Sirius knows Lily is good for James. He's going to need someone to keep him company for a whole six months, after all, and who better than someone who can? judging by the sounds that filter through their thin walls, do magical things with his dick. Good for James, Sirius thinks. His dick deserves a little magic. A whole six months. Wow. James, Sirius whines, suddenly grabbing his best friend around his very firm middle and holding tight. Not for the first, or even third time today. Half a year. It's the longest they've ever been apart if you don't count the time before they knew each other, and they don't, and Sirius isn't quite sure he'll manage. James is his rock. His friend. His brother. His confidant. His only real, true support in the world. Six months is a lifetime. James, despite having been subjected to several of these fits of melodrama, returns the hug in his soul-settling way stretching up to prop his head atop Sirius's messy bun. You'll be all right. We've got FaceTime and Snapchat and an international data plan. Besides, he stresses with a cheeky wink, you'll be having too much fun shagging your way across Europe to even notice I'm not there.
Sirius snorts and buries his head further into his chest. He's vainly flattered that James hasn't even tried to imply that Sirius might not get the job. He's seen the list of other pianists auditioning and knew he was leagues above them. His only real competition is Dorcas Meadows, but she's younger and not as charming as Sirius knows he is. Besides, not many elite musicians can just up and leave for six months. Most have contracts with their symphonies, but not Sirius. He likes to keep his options open. I'll be too knackered to pull. A new city every week. He protests. And I only speak, like, four of the languages. It's no use. He mumbles miserably. Oh, excuse me, Mr. I only speak five languages. I think your face will do all the talking for you, mate. James chides with an eye roll. It is a rather nice face, isn't it? Sirius muses, laughing when James shoves him away with a well-placed palm to his rather nice face. His phone rings. His laughter dies. Moment of truth. Chapter 2. Marcado. They gather together for the first time as an ensemble in London, in the borrowed Barbican Centre, on a typical drizzly January day. Being a Londoner by choice, though he often questions the rationale behind said choice, usually when stuck in traffic or when the heat makes the stink even worse, Sirius arrives on time and well-rested, despite the anxiety spike that resulted in frantic repacking of his luggage at 3 a.m. The director insisted that they all meet face-to-face -face before they split up to travel to their first destination which, James read to his sleepy head that morning, is France. Bloody France. It's not that Sirius doesn't like France. It's nice enough, as far as popular tourist destinations go, but he's been loads of times. He'd hoped they'd start somewhere a little more exciting, like Greenland. Logically, he knows they're never going to Greenland. A population of less than 60,000 does not lend itself to a large portion of people with expendable income to blow on something so bizarre and frivolous. But it still would have been nice. He's not the first one there, holding his enormous stainless steel tumbler of coffee. Black, because he likes to pretend he's hardcore. But he is among the earlier arrivals. Sirius recognizes most of the people, other British locals who run the circuit like he does. Names and faces of headshots or dramatic playing stills he's seen on window-plastered flyers or, sometimes, on a billboard. His own face has been recreated four meters high in brilliant resolution, advertising his unique talent for this very hall. But he's not the most famous person here today, which is actually a little humbling, not that he'd say as much out loud. One has a reputation to protect, after all. Several of the musicians are older, more accomplished, storied, Minerva McGonagall, legendary violist, which were not words one usually strung together. For instance, greets him with a steely gaze and a polite if curt and resigned nod of recognition. But the one who stands out most arrives at the very last second, and he has to duck through the entryway of the door, not just to avoid bumping the hard-shelled case settled on his shoulders, but his own curly head. He does so fluidly, in a motion he must repeat several times a day, and when he draws near, Sirius can see why. Sirius is not short. He's a respectable and appropriate six feet, give or take a smidge. All right, he's five eleven and a half and very thick socks. This man is giant. He's at least five inches taller than he is, and though he casts an apologetic look to the director for being nearly late, 
His brow furrows in what Sirius can only hope is a wild case of resting bitch face, because otherwise he's inordinately hacked off for a Tuesday morning. Sirius tries to place his name, tries to remember where he's seen his face before, but it isn't until their mind-numbing icebreaker game reaches the leggy beanpole that Sirius's brain is jogged into remembering. Remus Lupin. He introduces himself. Cellist, obviously. Remus continues, gesturing to the cobalt blue ABS case he now cradles protectively between his feet. I'm from Dover and I've been playing for 22 years, though only 14 of those are worth mentioning. A ripple of laughter courses through the seated group, which Sirius thinks is undue. It wasn't that funny. What do I like most about my instrument? It's a question they'd all been asked and tasked to answer. Sirius said his favorite bit was that the piano offered itself up to a host of different genres, which made it exciting to play and it wasn't entirely a lie, to varying degrees of amusement. The cello is the most like the human voice. Well, that's a bold claim. Sirius frowns and immediately catches Remus's eye. To his surprise, Remus scowls right back, giving him a scathing look he's not entirely sure he deserves. What the fuck? He doesn't even know this guy beyond hearing his name on the lips of every fucking orchestra conductor he's worked alongside for nearly five years now. Oh, Remus Lupin could really bring life to this piece. And... Couldn't afford that Lupin cellist, it's a pity. As they tried to work some depth of feeling into their substandard cello sections. Sirius thinks all of the talk must have gone to Remus's head, self-important wanker. With introductions finished, the director gives a speech that feels a little too long-winded to be appropriate for a Tuesday morning before reminding them of the itineraries preloaded on their mobile calendars with their flight details. Remus, it seems, as are several others with delicate instruments, are taking the ferry to France rather than risking their babies on a flight. Sirius, who has not deigned to bring his own piano, it was too much work to lug the thing around. And really, isn't it a mark of true mastery to be able to use anyone's instrument? Can't help but think it's all a little silly. He doesn't say as much to Remus's face. Because Minerva is also taking the ferry and while Sirius is not scared of her, alright maybe a little, he doesn't want to get on her bad side, again. Because he was raised with manners, which is more than can be said for the other man. What his problem is with him, Sirius doesn't know. He tries to make small talk while refilling his coffee next to him, but only gets a few stilted responses that leave his bones coated in ice and his blood running hot with annoyance. Arsehole. Sirius finds out what Remus's problem is soon enough, though. His roommate on the right is a disarmingly charming flautist named Benji, who has plenty to say. As they come, Benji is decent company. He's friendly and laughs at all of Sirius's jokes. Let's him have the window seat. He loves to watch the ground melt away as they take off, and apparently knows Remus. Intimately. Interesting. Remus was angling for his girl Dorcas to make the pianist's seat, Benji says as they settle in. Not his girl girl, but his friend, like. She's great, but you're better, he adds, looking up at Sirius through lowered lashes. Ah. Sirius thinks. Benji wouldn't mind getting to know him intimately, either. It's too bad, really, that he's already decided he isn't going to shag anyone in the ensemble. He and Minnie, she does hate it when he calls her that, and so he does. Exchange looks earlier, Shivu's caught him with his literal pants down at a concert three years ago before he was due to go on stage. 
He could hardly be blamed for trying to ease the vocalist's stage fright with a little blowjob, could he? He was only being a good co-worker. Whichever way the blame fell, Minnie had made her disapproval clear, and Sirius decided to keep his dick to himself. Mostly. Or at least until they got out on the town. Min was scary. Dorcas Meadows. Sirius clarifies, even though he knows her last name perfectly well. A name like that, and a talent like hers, doesn't go unnoticed, like his own. At Benji's affirming nod, Sirius shrugs. She was good, but he was a genius. It's not my fault she didn't make it. Remus will have to get over it. We'll be spending a lot of time together. Chapter 3. Maestoso Sirius knows magic isn't real. That's the stuff of storybooks and fevered dreams. But now, watching Remus play, he reconsiders his convictions. He's curled around the sanguine wood, his long body bent lovingly around it, his left hand in a fond, too intimate caress along the neck. It could be his neck, Sirius thinks, dry mouth. They've been rehearsing on the stage for hours now and though the harsh overhead lights have just now only prompted beads of sweat to dot Sirius's temples, they've nearly matted Remus's thick hair to his neck, turning the sandy curls a dark, burnished gold. His face is serene sincerity, his mouth relaxed yet not, his brow furrowed as he navigates the chords and complicated slide of calloused fingers over strings. His right arm moves independently of the left as it glides across those strings making them sing. The stage pulses with something, music, obviously, but something more, maybe. Something that smells like warm honey musk sandalwood as Remus's overwarm body sways in time with the crescendo of his sound, building and pushing and making serious feel, making the notes feel, alive. It is a whole body experience, and he feels it in each of his senses. The low C, open string resonance, makes Sirius's ribs ache under his skin and sends a tingle down his spine. The cello is the most like the human voice, Remus had said, scathing and self-assured, when they first met. Full-bodied and vastly moldable, fluid, so unlike the plunking machination Sirius makes on the piano with his stupid, mortal fingers. There is no motion to his music, Sirius thinks now. How could there be, when you consider this? He envies him. He hates him. He wants him. The final note rings like a sorrowful wail in a duet with that final realization and Sirius swallows around the sudden lump in his throat. He's afraid to speak, afraid to shatter the spell with his clumsy words. Remus sighs, a harsh, bitter sound, and looks over his shoulder at him, his golden eyes wary and almost like chips of amber, the pupils but the fossilized remains of something ancient. Are they really the same age? Surely not. That bad, was it? Remus asks, his voice a rasp, parched. He reaches down to the water bottle at his feet and takes a gratifying slug. Water drips down his chin, and only the traitorous throb of Sirius's dick and Remus's huff of breath, as he exhales, reminds Sirius that he still hasn't said a word. What what? He stammers, flushing at his wavering tone. Real smooth. You never shut the fuck up. Rude but true. So it must have sucked. Remus concludes simply. Entirely false. Sirius's eyes widen and he takes great gulps of air. Remus's air, he thinks, still honey-sweet. To a coherent words from his throat. 
He should stand, he thinks, and nearly kills himself getting up from the piano bench, his foot caught around one of the legs. Remus doesn't move beyond angling his cello. Ganymede, he's named it, protectively away from Sirius's stumbling body, and regards him with a dry look. He's mortified but alive, and writes himself quickly to stand in front of Remus and his absurdly named cello. It didn't suck. Sirius protests, hating how petulant he sounds. He's a grown man, not a child. He can pay another man a compliment for his masterful performance. Except, Remus isn't just any man. He's Remus Lupin, Europe's most sought-after cellist in the past fifty years. He's a virtuoso in its purest form. Chapter 4 Espressivo It was beautiful. It was breathtaking. It was everything. Sirius doesn't remember a thing other than those three irrefutable facts after he sat down on the bench. He knows he played, and played beautifully, because he is Sirius Black, after all, but there were no conscious thoughts. The music flowed from him like something sentient, coaxed from him and the lovely instrument at his fingertips like it had a mind of its own. And maybe it did. Maybe the music no longer belonged to him, but to him. To Remus. Remus commanded the stage, then, all long limbs and graceful movement. Sirius was only there to accompany him, cello with piano, not the other way around, and from the way the audience cheered and clapped and pulsed with approval at the final, haunting note that hung suspended as if frozen in time, he'd done his part. For once, Remus doesn't regard him with closed-off disdain or that strange, guarded suspicion. He looks at Sirius like he approves, and the way it makes him feel is disorienting. How? Why? He doesn't need Remus Lupin's approval. He's just as good of a musician as he is. Except, though, he's not. Sirius knows that. While Sirius has studied his art from the time he could sit upright and hold the melody in his head, he knows that his mastery over the piano was bitterly won, forced into him. He protested all the lessons and stretching exercises and hours upon hours practicing and rehearsing until the will to fight went out of him. He is brilliant at the piano, as evidenced by his employment with the foundation, of course, but Remus. Remus lives music. He breathes it. Every motion he makes offstage seems to mimic his art form. Sirius watched him brush his teeth, once, waiting for him to come down for breakfast, and saw his fingers splay across the handle like he holds the bow. He holds a cup like the neck of his cello, and when he sits, he's always at the edge of his seat. His love for the music is real, is evident, is clear, and it shows. Sirius is an accomplished pianist. Remus is a master cellist. So, then, the approval he sees levied at him in those honey-colored eyes does mean something. It unlocks something squirmy and warm and distinctly uncomfortable in Sirius's chest that trickles its way down his body, into his limbs, settling where it finds room. The approval turns to something like amusement, and Sirius feels his face flush as they are ushered off stage, replaced by the woodwinds and a lone, stoic violinist. The darkness of the wings hides the mortifying beacons on his cheeks, but Sirius can't help but look over at Remus as he stores Ganymede in its, his, it has pronouns, Sirius remembers. Hard-shelled case. Remus catches him looking and Sirius doesn't look away, not this time. 
their eyes meet, and it must be the adrenaline. Sirius thinks that makes his heart beat faster. It must be the adrenaline. He thinks that makes his mouth run dry. It must be the adrenaline. He thinks that makes him yearn. He's beautiful. He's breathtaking. He's everything. It's a dangerous train of thought to pursue, Sirius knows. They've only known each other for a handful of weeks, and Remus has made it clear that he isn't impressed by Sirius's reputation. They haven't even really spoken much outside of rehearsals and brief, polite, sleepy pleasantries over eggs and sausages at breakfast in the hotels they'd board at. And yet, Sirius feels like he's seen Remus. He's definitely heard him, in every delicately maneuvered phrase of the aria, but how many people can say they've really, truly, seen into someone's soul? That's what playing with, accompanying, Remus Lupin is like Sirius acknowledges now. Sirius is truly the guarded one, always keeping others at arm's length despite his willingness to draw them to bed. Remus plays with his whole chest, leaving nothing out, nothing bridled, Remus who lives and breathes and is music. So what if he doesn't know Remus's favorite television program, or what his most treasured memory is? Sirius has seen him. Are you coming to the after-party? Sirius hears himself ask without meaning to. So far, Remus has been distant, and has kept away from the other musicians their age. Where Sirius has flitted and flirted, where's the harm, and flounced among their talented number, Remus usually retires early, away from the chaos. So, when he answers, Sure, why not? Sirius is stunned. He continues to be stunned when, hours later at a nice bar with gold gilt ceilings and plush velvet seats, a bold choice for a bar, in his opinion, Remus is still there and still talking to him, him. They're alone at their foretop, a field of empty glasses between them. A waiter, velvet-backed, really, velvet, and polite, offered to take the glasses away but they decided on a whim that no, they'd like to have a tally at the end of the night, whenever that would be. They're laughing and leaning close, and Sirius's brain reminds him of his most burning question. What's your favorite television program? He asks, low and conspiratorial like the answer will open up a world of information about the man adjacent to him. I don't really watch television, but I used to like those cheesy medical dramas. Remus answers. Used to. What could possibly make someone change their ideas about what genre of television they liked at their age, 26, when they were already set in their ways? You don't like them anymore. Something in Remus's face falls and Sirius regrets asking, feels the guilt twist in his gut like a serrated knife, the kind they use to cut bread, maybe, but sharper, uglier, more twisty. He should not have had that last glass of wine. Sirius begins to say no. You don't have to tell me, when Remus speaks. No, my um, I spent a lot of time in hospital with my mother, towards the end of her life. Oh fuck. The guilt Sirius felt moments ago pales in comparison to the crashing wave of regret, and I fucked up that hits him now, cold and fishy and dripping down from the crest of his head to settle in his very nice, bespoke leather boots, ruining them beyond repair, like this conversation, like any chance at... Anything he might have had with Remus. Shit, I'm so sorry, I didn't me. It's fine. Remus interrupts, far too kindly for how grievous of an insult Sirius feels he's slung. You didn't know, it was four years ago. I'm alright. Are you? Fuck. 
Stop talking. Why is he asking more questions about his dead mother? Sirius and his own mother have a very complicated relationship that mostly involves him doing his very best to make her proud and her pretending as though he no longer exists, in some variation on a hundred themes. Despite that, he's reasonably sure he'd still be a little fucked up over her death after only four years. It would take at least five to put that harpy to rest. No. There's a sad smile that breaks over Remus's face like the dawn, breaks off a piece of Sirius's heart with it, and Sirius wonders where this all went wrong. With a television question. What a stupid thing. He should have asked about books, or composers, or something more academic, less chance of bringing up a dead mum. But life goes on. I'd much rather have her here, still with me, but she knew she was dying and she made sure I would be alright, when she did. She made me promise her to keep getting better and to buy myself the cello of my dreams. That's how I got Ganymede. Ganymede Sirius learned after some completely normal and not stalkery research that involved a deep dive through dozens of interviews, is a German-made cello from 1910, and had to have cost Remus well over 20,000 pounds, if not double that. Not that Sirius is judging. There's a lot to be said about the quality of antique craftsmanship, and Remus's cello is gorgeous. Oh, I'm sorry. He's really fucking things up, isn't he? But what is he supposed to say? The loss of a parent was personal, something Sirius hasn't experienced before, so he can very well say. I know how you feel. Remus shrugs and accepts the drink the waiter brings by for him. Golden honey amber something like his eyes, and takes a small sip. Don't be. Cancer sucks. She was a good mum. It sounds like it. Sirius says quietly, taking the drink he'd forgotten all about. Whiskey neat. Dangerous. Is she who got you into playing so young? Yeah, Remus says, and the light is back in his eyes, and Sirius knows he'll do anything to keep it there. She played, herself. Never anything like this, this is wild, but she played in a symphony in France, for years. I was wondering where you learned French. Sirius cries, that sudden mystery finally solved. Remus has spoken with surprising fluency with every local they'd encountered, far surpassing Sirius and his formal, stiff attempts. It bothered him at first, but then he just wanted to know more. One of his tawny brows quirks on his forehead. How can he move them independently? Sirius wonders, and Remus's lips twitch in what Sirius hopes is amusement and not disgust. Is it so strange to speak French, Sirius? You speak French, sort of, he points out. Sirius rolls his eyes and drinks from his glass. No, he defends, rolling his eyes again, for good measure. It's just, well, I learned it because my family's pretentious. That's the understatement of the year, but Sirius isn't sure how much Remus knows about them. The Blacks are an old family, and have their hands in a little bit of everything in England, but are the sort of ancestral wealth and influence that isn't really seen. Their influence is felt, surely, in the House of Lords and in the courts, but they're puppeteers rather than the frontmen. Remus laughs, and Sirius drinks in the sound like a dying man to life-giving water. Yes, well, I gathered that by your name. Sirius gulps and dips his fingers in the whiskey that he sure costs too much to be mistreated this way and flicks a few droplets at Remus, splashing the edge of his jaw and the collar of his shirt. He wants to lick it off, see how the tasting notes change when mixed with Remus's sweat and skin, and that's dangerous thinking. 
That's awfully rich coming from a man named Remus Lupin. Sirius retorts instead, keeping his tongue inside of his own mouth and not in Remus's. I never said mine wasn't pretentious. Remus defends, and God damn him if he doesn't just wipe away the whiskey with his fingers and lick them clean. Sirius is sure his heart stops, really, really sure, but he must not be dead yet, because he can still hear Remus talking. There's just no money to back that up. What does that make us? Garish. Gauche. He has to get control of himself, of this conversation, of something in his life right now because the way things are going, Sirius is going to combust into flames if he so much as gets one more smile from Remus. What's your middle name, then? Ten quid says I've got you beat. Confidently, Sirius drops a tenor on the table between them. No bet. What? It's John. Sirius makes a strangled noise and throws the note at Remus with a sharp laugh, incredulous. A normal fucking name like John and you choose to go by Remus. Are you mad? Remus looks at him from over the rim of his glass and Sirius doesn't know if it's his eyes reflecting the golden liquid or the liquid reflecting his eyes, but it's captivating and he can't look away. A bit, yes. I think I'd have to be, a little, to be sitting here with you when everyone else has gone home. Sirius glances around fully aware of Remus's amusement as it rolls across the space between them, at him. Everyone has gone back to the hotel, apparently, and he doesn't recognize a single face in the crowd other than their put-upon waiter. Oh, you think you're funny? I know I'm funny, Remus comments, smirking. He laughs again, and Sirius feels his control slipping away. So what's your middle name, then? There's nothing for it. He has to tell him, now, even if Remus is utterly ridiculous for not going by his perfectly normal middle name. Orion. Stop laughing. I'm not laughing. Remus laughs, the bastard, and Sirius is swept up in it. It pulls him to the edge of his seat, has him leaning in close, too close, so he's nearly nose-to-nose with Remus. You are so. Remus smirks again, and this close, Sirius catches a glimpse of his incisors, how they turn out a little crooked and utterly charming. All right, I'm laughing, he admits, unapologetic. Burke. Sirius grouses before he can stop himself. Really, so much of that lately, what is with his filter? And sucks in a sharp breath because wow, insults are definitely the way to. Tossa. Remus's retort is a pleasant surprise, and it sparks a new kind of fire in Sirius's belly that has nothing to do with the whiskey. Pillock. Nob. Dick. Yes, they've devolved to penis insults, it would seem. But 26 isn't that far off from 12, is it? Bellend. Remus quips coolly. Cockleba. Wait. Fuck. Is that even an insult? Remus asks, brows raised. Um. Did it feel like one? Sirius questions hopefully. Remus shakes his head. No. Damn. Sirius. Oi, that's not an in. His protest is cut short by lips on his. Lips that are warm and a little wet from his drink and soft and perfect and belonging to Remus Lupin. Oh. Sirius says intelligently. Oh. Remus looks hesitant. A cautious look in his eyes that doesn't suit him. Makes him look so so much younger. And Sirius needs to make it go away. Oh. He confirms and leans in to kiss him. Properly and oh oh indeed. He's really out of his seat now and climbing into Remus's lap, heedless of the posh clientele in this fancy, 
French bar with the velvet seats and velvet-backed waiters. It's beautiful. It's breathtaking. It's everything. Let's go. Sirius gasps against Remus's open mouth, and they're out the door. Chapter 5. Tenuto Sirius should probably be ashamed for how openly he grabs Remus in the lifts. He should probably be ashamed for the sharp gasp of Rilly. That comes from the old woman waiting on floor two, who wisely decides to wait. He should probably be ashamed for how rumpled their shirts are, their half-sipped flies, their kiss-swollen lips. But how can he be? How can he feel anything except want and need and more as Remus unlocks his room, serious and twined around him like some sort of devastatingly handsome octopus, all limbs and wandering fingers? Remus huffs a laugh-moan hybrid when Sirius's fingers card through the short, surprisingly soft curls down the front of his trousers from behind, and it's all he can do to not reach in further and stroke him in the hallway. They make it in, just barely, laughing between teeth-clanging kisses and two firm gropes. It's not the usual finesse with which Sirius prefers to do things. No, there's been far too much alcohol for that, but Remus's eyes are clear enough, his intention clear enough, his willingness loud and fucking clear enough as he pushes Sirius against the newly closed door the minute they're through, kissing the life out of him while his clothed dick tries to kiss Sirius's through their jeans. The room's the same as his, Sirius knows, and the bedroom is just a short turn away. They just need to, oh. Kissing against the wall is good, too, and Remus is hot, searching hands and the scrape of a stubbled cheek and, God fucking damn. Wet tongue that curls under his jaw and makes Sirius's knees go weak. Sirius tilts his head back to give Remus more room to work, heedless of their transition to the back of an overstuffed armchair. His spine curves willingly to it, and his cock strains very willingly towards Remus's body as he works his way down his jaw to his neck to his shirt, plucking open buttons with exhilarating skill to reveal inch after inch of Sirius's pale chest. And then Sirius sees it. Him. Ganymede. He wriggles out from the gentle cage of Remus's arms and crosses the room to where the cello sits on a stand, lovely and perfect and not at all judgmental because he's a cello. Pronouns be damned. Remus. Wait, wait. Sirius protests, giggling. Yes, giggling. As Remus's hands wrap around his ribs to try to reel him back in. Play for me. Remus makes a noise that goes straight to Sirius's dick, a frustrated sort of growl and Sirius delights in the sharp nip to his neck that he hopes leaves a mark. Want to play with you? Remus insists, cupping the not insignificant bulge between Sirius's legs. Great, Sirius announces, and pushes him backwards into the armchair. Before Remus can snake his arms around his waist and drag him into temptation, Sirius bobs back to where Ganymede waits and picks him up with as much care as he can manage. He presses the neck into Remus's outstretched hand and takes up his position in Remus's lap. Go on. The derisive snort lacks the annoyance Sirius has come to expect, and Remus bites his earlobe. Really? It's 2 a.m. Huh. So it was. Really? We're leaving tomorrow afternoon anyway. Sirius says in what he hopes is his most charming, sultry voice. What does it matter? Come on, Lupin, I want to feel it. He hears something muttered that sounds a lot like oh you'll feel it all right, though Sirius pretends he hears oh you're right, 
you brilliantly gorgeous sexpot of a man, whatever you want, I'm yours. The mismatch of syllables does not occur to Sirius in his current state, and Remus shifts him off his lap to take the instrument out, along with a black piece of rubber Sirius hasn't seen before. He waits patiently, all right, mostly patiently, rocking back and forth on his heels like it's Christmas morning and he's four years old again, while Remus extends the end pin, puts the black rubber bit on Ganymede's strings down at their base, and rearranges his long legs in the chair that isn't his usual stool. Come here, Remus prompts, and pats his leg. Flat against me. Spread your legs. Sirius complies, endlessly pleased by the hard cock now pressing against his arse. He does his very best not to wiggle, too much, and keeps his hands to himself. Ganymede gets leaned against him, and the smell of the wood is as intoxicating as he finds Remus's to be. Remus's arms are long enough to wrap around his body to play, and Sirius feels it really feels it, the vibrations through the instrument, each inhale and exhale from the man behind him, rustling his hair, setting his blood on fire. Remus plays something soft, the sound muted and gentle, and Sirius isn't entirely convinced that he hasn't made it up on the spot. He shifts the bow in his fingers to pluck the strings, his arm pulling tight around Sirius with each tension and release. It's enchanting. It's lovely. It's fucking hot. Sirius feels adrift, lost in the gentle sea of his sound and his being, in being held as covetously to his body as the cello is. He wants to be played like Ganymede, to be handled with such reverence and skill and to be known like Remus clearly knows the cello. He needs it. After a while, Sirius has lost all track of time, though the room is still lit only by the moonlight streaming through the window. Remus's arms still and he kisses the soft patch of skin under Sirius's ear, nuzzling against his hair, and though the music itself has stopped, Sirius can still feel it in his veins. Satisfied, Remus murmurs against his skin and tilts Ganymede to his side. With an excess of caution, Sirius slides from Remus's lap and kneels, inhaling the look of sudden, renewed want that darkens Remus's face. No, he answers, his meaning clear. He waits until Remus puts Ganymede away properly, all settled and latched and sorted, before grabbing his hand and pressing his fingers to his lips. Remus traces the shape of them, featherlight if a little sticky, but Sirius doesn't think too hard about it before taking two of his fingers into his mouth. He meant to put on a show, to let Remus know that while he can't play for him, he has plenty of other ways to make music, some corny cheesy bullshit like that, but his fingers taste bitter unpleasant. Sharp. Remus gently pulls his fingers away and the bastard laughs as Sirius grimaces, tongue out, confused. I've rosin on my fingers, you daft idiot. Remus laughs, wiping his spit-dampened fingertips on his jeans. It tastes awful. You brought that on yourself, Sirius. He snickers and stands. It puts his denim-covered dick at eye level with Sirius, who is only stopped from pitching forward to see what that tastes like by Remus stepping away. Let me wash my hands. Wait for me in the bedroom. There's that brief hesitancy again, like Remus doesn't quite believe that Sirius could want him. As if he hasn't spent the last several weeks trying to get Remus to notice him in a positive way, to stop viewing him as the man who took his friend's spot for this job. As if Sirius could stop wanting him. Sirius nods, smiles, and crosses into the bedroom, feeling nervous. 
It's a good nervous, he decides, stripping off his shirt the rest of the way. It's the kind of nervous before an audition he knows he's going to ace, because he knows what he's doing, both on the piano and here, waiting for Remus, listening to the sounds of the tap running. It's a good nervous, he confirms, when Remus returns and stares openly at him. Sirius knows he's stunning. He sees it every time he looks in the mirror, reflected in the faces of his pulls and reads it in the articles written about him in music publications. Remus knows it, too, and Sirius senses his new pause is due to a measure of self-consciousness rather than unwillingness. Take off your shirt, Sirius prompts gently, crooking his fingers at him even as he steps forward to help him along. His shirt is wrinkled but still starched crisp under his fingertips and the buttons. Pearl snaps, come apart readily with a firm tug. Remus is a marvel, he decides with an appraising, approving hum. Where Sirius is pale, alabaster, ivory with carefully curated definition in his muscles and a fashionably waxed chest, Remus is tan, almond, sun-kissed warmth that Sirius is not sure how he maintains in a place like England, with her cloudy rainy winters. He's thin, Sirius knew this, and angular, hit bones sharp but bracketing the hint of a V-shaped band of muscle that has his mouth running dry. Remus's chest is lightly muscled, firm, and coated in impossibly soft, dark golden hair that thickens at his belt, implying more. His arms, God, his arms, are thicker, stronger, supported by deceptively broad shoulders strengthened by a lifetime of carrying a heavy object on his back. He's gorgeous, Sirius whispers. And just like that, the heat is back, fanned into a roaring flame as the uncertainty fades into something like hunger on Remus's face. Their mouths meet, slotted together like matching pieces of a puzzle, slick and moaning and so unbelievably perfect, Sirius prays to a god he doesn't believe in that this is not a dream. Remus's fingers unfasten his fly and shove his jeans and pants down in one fluid movement and the noise he makes should be illegal for how instantaneously it makes Sirius's cock pulse. Bed, now, Remus urges, those amber eyes of his fixed on Sirius's lower half. Not that he can blame him. Watching as Sirius kicks the fabric off from around his ankles to sit on the edge of the bed. Remus follows him with swift, ground-eating strides before kneeling between his feet and taking him down his throat in one fluid motion. Remus, it's too much. He's unprepared. It's not enough. Sirius cries out in shock as his cock goes from rather cold, dry air to moist, hot, spongy tightness and digs his hands into the sheets below him. Remus's throat bucks and he gags, a sound that Sirius never wants to forget, would trade a hundred sonatas for, but doesn't pull away. Instead, he reaches out to blindly grab one of Sirius's wrists and guides his hand to his hair which he obligingly burrows into the wild curls. For a moment, short and fleeting, their eyes meet, Sirius's astounded gray to Remus's tear-pricked gold, and he nearly comes undone by the intensity of the want he sees there. Remus swallows around him and drags his tongue along the underside of his cock, and Sirius is inappropriately reminded of Remus's fingers on the neck of his cello, defining notes in nearly the same way he wrenches them from Sirius now. He pulls back, leaving the tip of Sirius's cock to rest, heavy and pulsing with precum on his bottom lip, and smirks, bloody smirks, up at him. I won't break, Remus promises, his voice already a little strained, 
and swallows him back down like he does this every day. Fuck, maybe he does, Sirius starts to think, adjusting his grip and his hair to guide him in sinful, perfect, balls-tightening glides on his dick. Maybe this is why Remus doesn't go out with them, because he's too busy sucking dick in this little hotel room. Irrational jealousy unfurls in his chest and Sirius hates it, hates the thought of Remus bringing someone here, kissing them against the coat rack, playing for them, making Ganymede sing, making them sing. It's sticky and hot and uncomfortable, and Sirius pulls Remus off of his cock with a lurid, pornographic pop. I want more, Sirius says on thinking. Remus's eyes are fully wet now, and his chin is covered in spit but he corks his lips up at the corners. I'm working on that, Sirius, he says with amused patience and a quick, unsubtle glance at his hard cock. No, I mean yes, I mean. Sirius screws up his face and feels himself blushing, not that it does anything to discourage his dick, still waiting. I don't want this to be it. Tonight, I want. Remus stretches up and kisses him, far softer and sweeter than Sirius expects and is crawling on top of him, pushing him back against the cotton sheets. You barely know me, Remus warns even as he unbuttons his jeans. And yet you want to keep me. He doesn't sound angry as he wiggles out of them, dark flushed cock coming into view through the opening in his briefs. You don't know me, he repeats, and Sirius helps him out of his pants. Yes I do, Sirius protests, grabbing his narrow hips and pulling him down flush. Their cocks brush, and it's not enough, he needs more. Just don't kick me out. Fuck me properly in the morning. Eat breakfast with me. I'll take the train with you to Germany. Sirius babbles, timing and pacing lost to the ether as he takes both of them in hand. He doesn't think he can wait for all the fumbling and condom searching and lubing and prepping for real sex, no matter how badly he wants to feel remiss buried in him. Or the other way around, he's truly not picky and judging by the heady moan making his ears ring, Remus feels similarly. Fuck, okay, yes. Remus pants, smiling, laughing, groaning as he pushes into the tight circle of Sirius's hand. This, sleeping, fucking, eating, train, he says in time with his thrusts, his voice ragged and worn from the abuse it suffered minutes before. He tries to say something else, but his words turn garbled as Sirius doubles down. Precum slicking the way for a too-good-so-close slide. His world is narrow to the man above him, the honey taste of his mouth against his, whispering, moaning, warning, and the reverberation of Remus's cracked cry as he comes in hot spurts over Sirius's cock and hand is, hands down, the most powerful thing he's ever felt. Sirius tries to chase his own orgasm alone, a handful of seconds stolen to race to the edge, frantic, desperate, but Remus's hand bats his away and oh his fingers are callous rough and painfully good, working his cock in a way that solidifies his determination to never let him go. Sirius comes, Remus's name on his lips and entirely too loud for what has to be nearly 3 a.m. now, but all he can hear is the roaring of his blood in his ears and Remus's heavy breathing. Instead of rolling away to immediately clean up, Remus kisses him, slow and steady and searching, sharing their short breaths until they even out, chests no longer heaving, cocks softening, come drying between them. Incredibly, it's how they fall asleep, and Sirius wakes up entwined and sticky and entirely too hot in the morning, tawny curls tickling his nose. 
He's afraid to move, to stretch, to use the lav he's needed for a few hours. He doesn't want to break this spell, this possibility that maybe Remus was just talking out of lust and ardor last night. He had sprung it on him in a very delicate situation. His sober brain reminds him mercilessly to face what might be a very uncomfortable and heartbreaking reality. Morning. Remus croaks sleepily, nuzzling his neck and burying his face further into it. Good morning, Remus. Serious answers, timid, unsure. Remus's fingers curl around his hip and something in him settles, unwinds. Five, no, thirty-one more minutes and I'll fuck you and we can go get breakfast. Sirius's heart skips far too many beats to be healthy and he could laugh, he could cry, he could sing. No rush, he says instead, stroking the wayward bird's nest below his chin. We can skip breakfast, I'll eat you instead. A drowsy rumble works its way from Remus's chest and he's rewarded for his cheek with a playful pinch to his side. Pratt. Wanker. Cocklebur. Remus croons, and drags his hand lower, those requested odd number of minutes seemingly forgotten as other parts of him stir. Cockatrice. Cockerel. Cocky. Yes, yes, he would definitely be keeping him, if he lets him, Sirius thinks, letting himself be drawn down into heated, morning breath kisses that do nothing to quell the love-shaped lump in his throat. Five months to go, it hardly seems enough. 